We here at Calvary are happy to be known as a Baptist church. However, we do gladly acknowledge that you do not have to be a Baptist in order to be a Christian. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus, not by what church we choose to attend. You are welcome here, no matter what religious background you have, whether you're a Baptist through and through, or you come from another denominational background, or whether you have very little or no history with the church at all. We just pray that Jesus gets a hold of you, no matter who you are, and changes your life. Personally, my Baptist roots go pretty deep, at least as deep as you can get for 27 years old. I was born and raised in a little Baptist church in California for the first 15 years of my life, after which we moved here to Ottawa into what is officially known as a non-denominational church, Although, as the Christian comedian Tim Hawkins says, non-denominational people aren't fooling anyone. You're just Baptist with a fancy website. <laughs> but I, anyway, I studied at Liberty University and at Heritage Theological Seminary, which are both Baptist schools. And my first job as a pastor was right here at Calvary Baptist Church. So my roots go pretty deep. If you told me a number of years ago that I had become a Baptist preacher... I'd be pretty surprised that I'd been a preacher, but I wouldn't have been surprised that I'd be Baptist. That's uh, how deep my roots go. Baptist preachers, though, have quite a significant legacy. If you think about the people who have been Baptist preachers over the years, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., Oswald Chambers, John MacArthur, John Piper, either were or are all famous Baptist preachers. Although I don't believe that any of these men are the most famous Baptist preacher. The most famous Baptist preacher, I believe, was also the very first Baptist preacher. He predated all these other men by centuries. He even predated every Baptist church out there. And if you think about it in a technical sense, he even predated Christianity. Now, when we talk about this guy, Baptist doesn't really mean the same thing that we mean today. I'm just trying to be a bit clever, but I think that you'll agree with me that he was the first Baptist preacher. And I'm, of course, referring to the man named John, son of Zechariah the priest, cousin of Jesus, who is known by his popular nickname, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. We're going to read about John today in Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles or you can take the one in the pew in front of you, you can turn to Luke chapter 3. It's on page 858 in your pew Bibles. If you haven't been with us lately, we've begun a series going through the Gospel of Luke, looking in greater depth at the man that we call our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even in this passage that we're going to be in today, that talks a lot about another man, we're going to see that Luke's focus is still especially on Jesus, with good reason. Before we go any further, though, would you please pray with me that the Spirit would guide us into truth through his word this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send your Spirit to be with us today in this room, as we know he already is. But we pray that you would send him in power into our hearts, that you would shape us and mold us, guide us into truth, that we might be more like your Son. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for each one of us, that we would see 
your truth and how it can transform our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were actually first introduced to John the Baptist back in chapter 1, when John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, miraculously conceived of him in old age. After John was born, Zechariah prophesied these words about his son. In chapter 1, verse 76, he said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then Luke told us one final thing about John in verse 80. He said, And the child John grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Luke picks up the story of John in chapter 3, which is where I had you turn. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, In the fifteenth year of, Tiberia, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Here, Luke was basically establishing the time and location that this took place. He described the leaders of the day politically and religiously, beginning in Rome, and then getting more and more local into Palestine. Now this firmly establishes this story in history, with real times, people, and locations. It is a reliable and verifiable historical account. Based on the information in this story... Provided here, this took place around the year A.D. 30, or A.D. 26, 29, 30, somewhere in there. And in that era, probably when John was around 30 years old, he began his public ministry. Verse 2, like we just read, said, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I have to warn you today. John the Baptist was a powerful, spirit-filled, prophetic preacher. But, John was also weird. (laughs) He did bizarre things like wearing camel's clothes, eating locusts and wild honey. He spent most of his growing up years apparently alone in Israel's desert wilderness So if you saw him, you'd probably think the desert sun had gotten to him. He would have been hairy, loud, and bold, not afraid of what anyone else thought of what he was saying. And he said some things that seemed pretty crazy. But they weren't crazy. We'll see some of these things today. In fact, as weird as John seems, he wasn't crazy at all. And God used him mightily with this purpose. John really was a man on a mission. God had sent John aside from birth with a very specific life purpose. And part of the reason that Luke wrote about John was to describe his mission. This is really what the first few verses are going to tell us in this chapter, that John's mission was to prepare people for salvation. 
The reason John was out ministering in the desert was in order to get people prepared. John's mission in life was to prepare people for God's salvation that was coming to earth. Read with me in verse 3, and we'll continue on from there. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So it says that John was meant to repair the way of the Lord in verse 4, but then that the Lord was, but then the Lord would use this preparation that John did to bring salvation to the earth. Verse 6, and all flesh shall see what? The salvation of God. Here in Ottawa, we should be pretty familiar with what it means to prepare roads. I'll tell you what I mean. Wait for it. <laughs> Whenever a special royal or political visitor comes to town, so foreign dignitaries coming to visit the capital of Canada, the city has designated a series of roads in Ottawa as official entrance routes into the city. That They usually lead from the airport, and then they head downtown, usually to Parliament or somewhere like that. So the airport parkway in Bronson, Colonel By, Queen Elizabeth Drive, Sussex, all these roads are often used as entrance routes into Ottawa. And they, they're meant to be beautiful and scenic and quick routes into the downtown core. And when these people show up in Ottawa say, the Queen or Will and Kate or the President of the U.S., these roads are cleaned up and then blocked off entirely to, to keep other cars out of the way and to help with security. Cones go up all over the place to keep other people out of the way and so the motorcade can go unimpeded and quickly downtown. Meanwhile, all the rest of us are stuck in massive traffic jams all over the city, unable to get anywhere on time. And after this week, they may need to look out for other things as they prepare these routes. We don't want the queen falling into that sinkhole, after all. <laughs> but the, the custom of preparing roads actually has been around for a long time. When an ancient king or queen or emperor would visit a city, usually the city would pull out all the stops to welcome them with a royal welcome. They'd be required to prepare a well-constructed approach road so that their ruler could approach and enter the city with dignity and pomp that they thought they deserved. And from the ruler's side of things, they'd usually send a messenger ahead to make sure people knew they were coming and to make sure that they got prepared. Well, eight centuries before Jesus came, Isaiah the prophet turned this custom into a prophecy. And that's what Luke restated here, saying that the prophecy was fulfilled by John. In verse 4, it said, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John was the herald sent ahead of the royal procession saying, the king is coming. Prepare the way. And Isaiah envisioned this construction project 
that was massive. Not just filling in some potholes or putting a couple cones up. He saw valleys being filled in and mountains being leveled. In verse 5, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And what will it lead to? Verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, John was not a construction worker. He was not out there at the base of some mountain with a shovel thinking, oh, I guess I better start leveling this thing. That's not, that wasn't his job. So obviously the preparing of these paths was metaphorical. It was a word picture. So he wasn't actually preparing roads. What did these paths or these ways represent? I believe that the paths that John was sent to prepare represented people's hearts. John basically told people, you need to prepare yourself for salvation is coming. Prepare your hearts... Because someone is coming to invade them and change them. The king is coming. When we say that salvation was coming to earth, it implies the truth that all mankind needs saving from something. And that's because all mankind has sinned against God. We've all broken his commands and his moral will, his rules that he's given us. And because we've sinned, we are all destined to face the consequence of sin, which is death. And when we're destined to face the punishment of sin, which is eternal death, separation from God forever. When Jesus came to earth, he brought salvation from these things. He brought salvation from sin and death and hell. And John's mission was to repair people's hearts for this salvation coming. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now you might think when you hear that verse, but all flesh didn't see the salvation of God. So what gives? There are so many people in this world that haven't been saved by Jesus. So, so what's the problem here? Well, this verse does not mean that God will save everyone. Michael Wilcock explains that rather, this verse means that there is no kind of person the gospel cannot reach, no boundary it cannot cross. Luke is saying not that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. And you, too, can be saved today, just as much as the people in John's and Jesus' day could be saved by Jesus. Back in verse 2, we saw that it said, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. The word of God came. And over 200 times in the Old Testament, this term was used to describe prophets. And Zechariah had also said that his son would be the prophet of the Most High. So part of John's ministry would be prophetic, speaking for God to the people around him. That was the job of a prophet, speaking for God to people. And boy, did God ever give John the Baptist a voice to speak for him. You can just imagine John, when we read his stories, having this booming, powerful voice calling people to God. And see, John didn't just have a mission. That was the first part that we saw. John had a mission to prepare people for salvation, but as part of that mission, he had a message. 
And what was his message? We're going to see it in the next few verses. I summed it up this way. John's message told people to live a lifestyle of repentance from sin. John's message was one of active repentance. He boldly prophesied for people to live a lifestyle of repentance of their sins. In verse 3, we saw that John said, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's proclaiming a baptism, baptizing people. This is how he got his nickname, the Baptist. But it was a baptism, we saw, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean that being baptized was forgiving people's sins? It was saving them? No. What that means is that people who were getting baptized were getting baptized as a declaration of their repentance. It was a public show of saying, I'm going to repent of my sins before God. Neither baptism nor repentance can save us. Only God can save us. But repentance and baptism should be a natural part of being saved. Just to explain some terms if you're confused. Repentance is an active turning away from sins. Throwing them out. Killing them. Doing a 180, changing our behavior. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. Okay? Baptism is an outward symbol that is meant to display that commitment. We believe baptism involves being dunked underwater and then coming back up. And John's baptism is the first instance of baptism we see in Scripture. The baptism instituted in the church later after Jesus is slightly different. It's broader. Not only does it represent that we have repented of our sins, but it identifies us with Jesus who died and rose again. Going under the water and coming back up symbolizes that. By the way, if you have not been baptized and you would like to be, we would be thrilled to help you do that, to show you're a follower of Jesus. Even next week, we'll fill up the tank whenever we need to and as often as we need to in order to help you guys, because we feel that it is important for all of us to be baptized as a step of obedience to Jesus. Starting in verse 7, we get a sampling of the message John was proclaiming. And here's what John said. He said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, (laughs) who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Woo! Two things we notice right away there. One, that can be really confusing. And two, that was really harsh. (laughs) I'll try to explain what John is saying here and why he was so harsh. I mean, think about it. Imagine with me, if one of you came up to me today and, and asked me to baptize you, and I responded by snapping back, You snake! <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> That's what it seems like John is doing here, doesn't it? said, to those who want to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. <laughs> you don't need to be a Greek scholar to know that's an insult. 
But if these people wanted to be baptized, why would John denounce them so harshly? Why did he say what he did? Isn't it good that they wanted to be baptized by him? Well, Luke isn't very specific about who John was talking to here. He just says the crowds who came out. I'm positive that John would not baptize someone who he just insulted this way. I'm positive about that. And yet we know that John was still baptizing many people. So apparently there were many people that were coming to him that he was happy to baptize and he didn't think were a brood of vipers. But, so who was this? Well, this story is also told in the Gospel of Matthew. And it adds another detail. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. And he continues with the same message we see here in Luke. So John wasn't rebuking everyone. He was focusing on some people. He was focusing on the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who didn't really want to repent. And that's the key. They thought they'd jump on this prophet's bandwagon by being baptized by him. They wanted to perform another outward sign of their religious devotion to God. However, John, through the Holy Spirit, knew that their hearts weren't right. He knew their hearts weren't right. And the heart of the message in what John says here is the first part of verse 8, when he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's the heart of his message. These people that he's talking to didn't actually want to repent of their sins, to turn away from them. They would say they did, even to the point of wanting to be baptized. But they were hypocrites and pretenders. Their lifestyle didn't show their repentance. And as prominent leaders in Israel, they would be leading others astray as well, not only jeopardizing their own souls, but the souls of others as well. And that's why John is so harsh with them. They didn't really want to repent. They didn't really want to be baptized and what that symbolized in their lives. And John knew that God's judgment would eventually come on all the unrepentant. That's why he says there was a wrath to come in verse 7. And in verse 9, he said the judgment was imminent, comparing the people to a tree that was about to be cut down. That's what he says when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As we read this, we have to remember that judgment is still coming one day. Sin has to be punished, which we'll get back to in a minute. Sin has to be punished. In verse 8, another confusing aspect of what he said, he said this, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is, don't rely on your religious heritage, your ancestry, or your family's faith to save you. And that's what some of them were doing. The message is the same for us today. Your family's faith, your religious background, it cannot save you. How you 
personally respond to Jesus, the only Savior, is what matters. John's focus, as we already saw, is really on repentance and how that repentance should impact our lives. Repentance is not a one-time action. We often think it is. It's something that we do one time and we don't have to do again. Repentance, ideally, it would be. It would be a one-time action that we never have to go back. But we are all still sinners. We all still sin. So it's not a one-time action. As Mark Driscoll says, repentance is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. The first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses actually said this, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance. John warned the religious leaders here that baptism, an action, was worthless without true repentance. This is a warning for us too, to not think that we're saved by a one-time action at some point in our lives without inner transformation. If you said the sinner's prayer one time, or went forward at an altar call, or you even got baptized, or all of the above, but your life never changed at all, you never really repented. If you made a commitment one time to live for Christ, but never kept that commitment. That's not true repentance. Christ only saves us when we turn our whole lives over to Him, truly repenting. We must trust in Christ for salvation and the Spirit to transform us. True repentance continues to repent every day, repeatedly fleeing our sin. That's repentance. Over and over and over again. And those who heard John's message had questions. In verse 10, it says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? What should we do? Basically, how do we live this life of repentance? And John offered them each a very practical advice in return. He says this in verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. When John had said earlier, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, this is the fruit he's talking about. This is the fruit that kept with repentance. See, true repentance makes changes in your life. So he told everyone to share willingly and lovingly in verse 11. He told tax collectors to not defraud people or that they collected taxes from. And he told soldiers to no longer extort people threateningly or to, and to be content with what they had. Now you might think, well, I don't have a tunic. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not a soldier, so these verses don't apply to me. Not so fast. You're missing the point of what John is trying to communicate here. I believe these verses imply that repentance is for everyone, no matter who you are 
or what situation in life you're in. Every situation in life has its own temptations to sin. If you're in a demanding job, you might be tempted to put your work above your family or above God. If you're going through a difficult time in your life, you might be tempted to worry, to complain, to not trust God. If you're a student, you might be tempted to cheat or to worry about your future, what's coming ahead. Again, not trusting God. If you're a parent, you might be tempted to get angry at your children, wrathful against them. In our sexually saturated culture, we are all tempted towards lust. Men by pornography, women by Fifty Shades of Grey. If you just happen to live in North America, you're tempted every day towards greed, envy, materialism, gluttony, and we hardly ever do what John says here and share our money, our clothes, or our food with those in need. We all struggle in different ways. We struggle in different ways, and we all have our own sins to repent of over and over again. God calls each of us to repent of our own sins. So, ask yourself, are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Does your lifestyle show your repentance? If you have repented of your sins, your life will begin to change by the power of the Spirit and through God's grace. I wonder... How did John's message here relate to his mission to prepare people for salvation? If he was preparing people's hearts for Jesus, why does he focus on repentance so much? Well, keeping the road analogy going from earlier, repentance was like the on-ramp for salvation. It's what leads to it. And as we said earlier, the Lord was coming to bring salvation, and salvation included the forgiveness of, of sin, brought about through our repentance. Really, John's ministry, if you think about it as a whole, it was unfulfilling. It brought people partway, halfway. But everything that John did was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus, when he came, Jesus fulfilled every part of both John's mission and his message. That's the final thing we'll notice in this passage today, that Jesus fulfilled John's mission and message by saving people, that's the mission, and by forgiving their sins, and that's the message. Jesus fulfilled John's mission of salvation and message of repentance. John the Baptist was getting quite famous in Israel, as you could well expect from someone so crazy and abstract out there in the desert. But still, he was getting so much famous that people began to wonder if he was more than just a preacher, or more than just a prophet. And in verse 15, it says this, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. The Christ, the Greek word for the Hebrew, Messiah. 
John boldly declares here that he was not, but that the Messiah was in fact coming soon. In verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Basically, he is mightier, he is worthier, and his baptism is better. That's what he's saying. In John's day, after a long, dusty day outside, if you were wealthy enough to have slaves or servants in your home, you'd come into your home, and a slave would meet you at the door and get down and untie your sandals. It was, it was looked on as a job. This is too dirty for me to do. I'll have my servant do it. And then they'd pull out a bowl of water and wash your feet. Okay, so the wealthy people of that day, this is what they would do. And John said that Jesus was so much greater than him that he didn't even deserve to be his slave. Did you know Jesus is that great? If John didn't deserve to be his slave, we definitely don't deserve to be his slaves. And two things are amazing about this. One, Jesus has made us much more than just slaves. He's made us his sons and daughters. That's amazing. Second thing, he did this by becoming our slave. Our servant. By stooping down to earth and washing our In verse 16, paints this great, mighty picture of Jesus. Verse 17 wouldn't be looked at quite so as a pretty verse. Verse 17 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a picture of a farmer with a pitchfork. That's a winnowing fork. And he's sifting wheat. By throwing it into the air. When wheat is harvested, there's both usable grain and the unusable seed coverings, known as chaff. So the wheat is smashed, known as threshing, on a threshing floor. And then it's heaved into the air where the heavier and usable wheat will fall back to the earth. And the chaff, the worthless scraps of straw, just blow away. So John is saying that Jesus would come. And when he came, he would separate the wheat from the chaff to judge and separate the righteous and the wicked. This is yet to happen, but it will one day. Jesus will return as judge. J.C. Ryle said this a hundred years ago. Okay, said this, believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. But there will be an awful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the King of Kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them forevermore. In verse 18, Luke makes an interesting comment to sum up John's ministry. It says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> I 
And we think, wait a second, good news? What we just read sure doesn't sound like good news, does it? But you can't have good news without the bad news. And the good news is really the reversal of the bad news. Did you miss the good news in what we, as we read through this? Did you miss it? The bad news, of course, John is very clear. We have all sinned and we deserve to be judged. The good news is that Jesus was coming to forgive sins and bring salvation. That's the good news. And that's what John preached to people. If the Holy Spirit has convicted you today that you are a sinner, that you have sinned against God like we all have, that's good that he's convicted you. We always need to remember how fallen we are. But don't stay there, feeling hopeless, lost, condemned. It's not where Jesus wants us to stay. Because the man that John said was greater than he has come. He's come and he has brought hope, salvation, forgiveness, and freedom from condemnation. Jesus did this by dying and by rising again. He's dying the death that we deserved living the life that we couldn't live, and offering us life today. And when we believe that and decide to live a lifestyle that shows it, a lifestyle of repentance, he just pours on the grace. He gives us grace upon grace every day to live for him. Have you accepted that grace before? Have you believed that Jesus came to save you? If not, I cannot urge you strongly enough to do this today. We'd love to help you if you'd like to discuss this further or if you have questions. Please make sure you come up and talk to me or a person who brought you to church today about this. Don't leave today without making the decision to make Jesus your Savior. Getting back to our story here, Luke tells us things out of order chronologically. Something very important happened to Jesus during John's ministry. And Luke obviously wanted to finish this account with that important event. But he also wanted to properly wrap up the story of John. Didn't want to leave us guessing. So he quickly tells us, what happened to John in verse 19 and 20, and then he jumps back to Jesus, okay? Verse 18 we saw, So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added, them, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John didn't just call out the religious leaders, he was calling out the political leaders. And the local king, Herod, had stolen his brother's wife. And John rebuked him for it, called him on it. Herod was annoyed, so it says on top of everything else evil that he had done, he arrested John, put him in prison. Although as we go through Luke, we're going to see John pop up a couple more times, because he's an important character in the story. But before Herod arrested John, this is where Luke jumps back a bit. John was still in the wilderness, baptizing people. Jesus showed up and shocked John by asking to be baptized himself. Now, this seems crazy, because John was baptizing people 
who wanted to repent of their sins, right? And Jesus had never sinned in his life. So that's why we read in Matthew when John sees Jesus coming up to be baptized, he incredulously asks Jesus, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus answered him, and then, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John wasn't about to fight with Jesus, so he went ahead and baptized him. But we wonder, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why did he come to John to be baptized? There are a couple main reasons that we believe Jesus was baptized by John. First, it identified him with John's ministry as a fulfillment of it. Okay, we've already seen that. But more importantly, more importantly, Jesus' baptism was an act of solidarity with humanity. He identified himself amongst sinners needing forgiveness. Philip Ryken says this, and this is great. He says, this was an act of solidarity. Jesus was taking the place of sinners. We are, we are reminded of the ancient prophecy that he would be numbered with the transgressors from Isaiah 53. If we are amazed to see him baptized, we are all the more amazed to see him crucified. The choice that Jesus made at baptism was the choice that ultimately led him to the cross. He was willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved. And so he was baptized. When Christ went to the cross a few years later, that is when he completely fulfilled John's mission and message. It was there that he brought salvation to the world, and it was there that he brought forgiveness for sins. In a neat way, Jesus' baptism foreshadowed that day, dying and rising again. Luke doesn't include all those details we just talked about, all the details of Jesus' baptism in the story. He just mentions that it happened. And then he gets to his main point in verse 22, which is the climax of this entire passage. Verse 21, he says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. Here we have one of the most obvious instances of all three members of the Trinity working together. The Spirit descends, the Son is honored, and the Father makes a declaration. It is a supernatural scene which has seriously wowed everyone around. The Holy Spirit, which is usually invisible, shows up visibly. As a dove. We don't know why a dove particular, but we know that he rested on Jesus. And this visually showed the Spirit coming in power on Jesus. And Jesus, the man, would be especially empowered by the Spirit on earth. After the Spirit descended, the Father spoke. You usually can't hear the Father, but he spoke audibly. Everyone around could hear the powerful voice coming from heaven. So everyone would know that Jesus was blessed by God the Father. His approval was there. Verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Father makes two things clear with this statement. 
his affection, and his approval. By calling Jesus his beloved son, he was saying he loved Jesus as God the Son. And by saying he was well pleased with him, he was saying he approved of Jesus as a man on earth, walking among us. In this chapter, we see Jesus being attested to by both man and God. Just like Luke told us last week that he was increasing in favor with both, we saw the man, John the Baptist, saying that Jesus was greater, worthier. He was Messiah. He was the Savior. And God the Father himself spoke and said, Jesus is my beloved Son, and I am well pleased with him. And we'll continue to see this affection and approval just growing in the months ahead. Now, in conclusion, if I were to tell you that outside of Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest person to ever live, would you believe me? In a few months, we're going to get to a passage in Luke that I don't want to spoil now. But Jesus himself says this, okay? He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, that verse has a different point than what I want to say now. But if John the Baptist, if Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest person ever born from women, which includes everyone, by the way, and John, and John couldn't say enough about how much Jesus was greater than him, what does that tell us about Jesus? We serve a great, Savior. We serve a great Savior. Jesus was far greater than John the Baptist, and that is no small thing. Why was he so much greater? Well, consider these things. John baptized outwardly. Jesus baptized inwardly. John preached boldly about another. Jesus preached boldly about himself. John was rumored to be the Messiah. Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. John preached repentance. Jesus gave forgiveness to the repentant. John, as we saw today, condemned sins. Jesus died for those sins. John was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, a priest, and a king. John was worthy of fame. Jesus was worthy of worship. John proclaimed the Savior, and Jesus was the Savior. May this stir us to honor and worship Jesus as our Savior with our entire lives, giving everything to him. For he is worthy. Let's pray.